This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your regular podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week we're talking about one of the most northerly sites in the English Heritage Collection and one of only a handful situated on an island. Over its 1,400-year-long history, Lindisfarne, or Holy Island, has been a hub of early Christianity, a monastery, a site of pilgrimage to its former bishop, St Cuthbert, and a victim of a devastating Viking raid. It was also the birthplace of the Lindisfarne Gospels, one of the most spectacular manuscripts to survive from Anglo-Saxon England, which was thought to have been created in Cuthbert's honour. Joining us to explain more is Senior Properties Historian Dr Michael Carter. Hello, real pleasure to be back. Yes, thanks for coming back, Michael. Let's start, of course, by going back right in time to when Lindisfarne became an important place in northeast England. Can you tell us when that was and what was the political and religious situation in that area of northern England at the time? It's a time of great political and religious change. We need to go back to the end of the 6th century when monks arrive from Rome in Kent to begin the process of converting the pagan Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. But around the same time, monastic missionaries following Irish religious traditions started to bring the Christian message via what's now Scotland from their island base of Iona in the Inner Hebrides. Now, the Anglo-Saxon kingdom where they meet is Northumbria, that's in northern England and southern Scotland, and it had its own political identity, its own fierce independence. And there's a kind of pincer movement of religious conversion. Missionaries from Canterbury spread across southern England and start to move north, and it's this form of Roman or continental Christianity that first reaches Northumbria. It's under a mission by a monk called Paul Linus, who's supported by King Edwin, who converts to Christianity, King Edwin of Northumbria. Now, he unfortunately dies in battle in 633, and his kingdom briefly reverts to paganism. But in 634, Oswald becomes king of Northumbria, and he's been converted whilst in exile by Irish missionaries, and he brings their form of Christianity to his kingdom. And the leading missionary of Oswald's time is Aidan. And with Oswald's support, he establishes the monastery at Lindisfarne. Yes, and I was going to say, what kind of Christianity did the Lindisfarne monastery espouse at the time it was established? Well, we must remember, you know, Christian traditions across Europe at that time, that there's much, much more that, that unites them than divides them. And I think some of the divisions have been played up in later historiography to try and justify religious divisions of their own age. So, you know, they agree on the fundamentals about Christ as the saviour, about the centrality of the celebration of the mass, for instance. And also they have strong monastic traditions to them as well. But there's a Roman tradition, which is, comes by a Kent, but there's also a brand of the Irish tradition. And, and people often talk about Irish missionaries and Irish Christianity in Anglo-Saxon England. Well, we need to untangle and unpack that a bit. What we're talking about is a tradition of St Columba from his monastery at Iona. And to an extent, you know, it's going to become significant later on in the story. That Columban tradition has come out of step not only with the mainstream 
Roman influenced continental traditions, but also with monastic traditions and Christian traditions in Southern Ireland. So when did Lindisfarne become a religious place? And why was this island chosen as this location? Well, in the introduction, you mentioned Lindisfarne has been an island that uh, even by the time of Lindisfarne's foundation in the mid 7th century, there was already well-established Christian tradition of founding monasteries on islands. Remember Aidan and his monks from Columba's monastery Iona, that was an island base as well. And that would, I think, have recalled for the monks the seclusion afforded by an island, would have recalled the desert where the early monastic Christian fathers had sought solitude. It's a watery desert rather than an arid, hot desert, but it's, it's the same kind of thing. But let's not forget that these monks are also missionaries. So as well as being secluded for prayer, they also need to be part of the world. And we shouldn't forget this is a seafaring culture. It was much quicker to travel by sea than it was by land. And a, a large number of monasteries in the kingdom of Northumbria were to be founded very, very near the coast and on, on river mouth. So Lindisfarne's in that kind of tradition. And also it's got an excellent natural harbour. And it's we talk about the, the island of Lindisfarne, but it's a kind of semi-island, isn't it? To get there, you have to cross the causeway, the tidal causeway. So it is accessible by land. And it's also part of what nerdy historians like me and archaeologists call a landscape of power. Because within sight of Holy Island is Bambra, the seat of the Northumbrian kings. And as well as being the monastery, Lindisfarne is also a seat of a bishop, a bishop closely aligned with the Northumbrian kings. There's a third place I need to mention as well, and that's an island close to Lindisfarne called Innerfarne. Now, this really is cut off. It really is a watery desert, and it becomes a place where Aidan would retire for prayer and fasting, and it's also very significant in the story of St Cuthbert, as I'll get on to shortly. Yes, of course. One of the podcast episodes that we first recorded together was on the Synod of Whitby, which, of course, decides the date of Easter. Whitby Abbey is about 127 miles down the northeast English coast in North Yorkshire, modern-day North Yorkshire, and that Synod or meeting decided our dates for Easter today. But how important was Lindisfarne to the changing attitudes to Christian worship? Yeah, well, there are two key issues discussed at uh, Lindisfarne. I'll, I'll, I'll start with the lesser of them, and that's the sort of the monastic tonsure. This is a society in which outward signs really matter. Now, the tonsure, that's the shaving of the head of monks, differs according to monastic tradition. And monks following the Irish Columban tradition uh, have a kind of male paddle baldness, which is a sort of badly receding hairline. They shave their head from ear to ear while the Roman monks shave the crown of their heads. And that's a tradition which is said to go right back to the time of St. Peter, the first pope, you know, Christ's apostle, dies in Rome. But the main issue at the Synod was how to calculate the date of Easter. Now, it's very complicated, but you know, the Irish monks are doing it one way, the Roman monks are doing it another way, and that can lead to discrepancies. Now, a meeting of churchmen and nobles is summoned to settle the question. Uh, it meets in 664 at St Hilda's Monastery at Whitby. We call it the Synod of Whitby. 
Now, the case for Irish or Columban Christianity is put by Coleman, Bishop of Lindisfarne, whereas Wilfred, a local boy who's gone to Rome and the continent adopted Roman patterns of Christianity, while he speaks for the Roman or continental side. And Oswe decides for Wilfred and Rome because he's able to cite the authority of St. Peter. And with his Christ-given authority, the keeper of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And when he turns to Coleman, Coleman can't cite similar authority via Columba. Now, Coleman can't accept this decision. And he and some followers leave Lindisfarne for Ireland, taking some relics, including the bodily remains of Aidan with them. So that's quite a turning point in the Irish Christianity, the, the I'm an Irish missionary Christianity that was prevalent in the north of England at the time. Well, you know, mainstream Christianity in Ireland at this time was already following Roman observances for the uh, calculation of the date of Easter. It was the adherence of St. Columba. It was Columban Christianity, the island monastery of Lindisfarne, which was advocating a different kind. And Coleman, he's strongly attached to this tradition and he cannot accept the decision that was reached at Whitby and which Oswy, the king of Northumbria, imposes on his kingdom. And he's got no option other than to leave. That's a really important kind of turning point in the development of Christianity generally, but also in the story of Lindisfarne on its own. There are some other important historical characters apart from Coleman, and that is St Cuthbert. We said in our introduction that he obviously is a saint, but he is venerated and he is a bishop as well. So can you tell us a bit more about um, why St Cuthbert was an important figure in Lindisfarne's story? Yeah, well, he's born of well-to-do Northumbrian parents, and in 651, aged about 17, he becomes a monk at Malrose in what's now the Scottish borders, but was then firmly within the Northumbrian kingdom. Now, after a short period at Ripon, he becomes prior of Malrose in 661. He adopts Roman customs after the Synod of Whitby and he fills the place left by Coleman and whilst at Lindisfarne he becomes a unifying figure there for the monks and he reconciles Roman and Irish or Columban traditions. Basically he can hear both sides of the argument while remaining firmly on message and adhering to the decisions of the Synod and the adoption of Roman observance. Now, he's a great preacher, and miracles are attributed to him even in his own lifetime. And there's a real austerity to his life. He puts himself through considerable hardships on in a farm, real echoes there of Irish monastic traditions, the suffering of the early fathers, and also emulating Aidan. And on Farn, he builds himself a hermitage. Its walls are so high that he can see nothing but the sky. And his reputation for holiness is such that he attracts visitors who are there seeking his counsel. And you get that with an awful lot of Anglo-Saxon saints. Now, in 684, he agrees to be consecrated as Bishop of Lindisfarne. But after only two years, he returns to seclusion on Farn. And it's on Farn that he dies in 687 on 20th of March. That becomes his feast day. And we mentioned also again in the introduction that Cuthbert's death turned Lindisfarne into a place of pilgrimage because that's eventually where he was buried, although he did, as you say, die on Farn, the nearby island. How did Cuthbert become a saint and unify again in death? Because he was obviously quite, yeah. quite a unifying figure in life. 
Well, there's no two ways about it. Yes, he does. Now, all great Anglo-Saxon churches had their own saint or saints. It's you know, a saint for every minster, is something nerds say. And Lindisfarne is replete with saints. I've already mentioned Aidan. But Cuthbert was to eclipse all other holy personages associated with Lindisfarne. Now, he had wanted to be buried on Farne, but he yielded to the wishes of the Lindisfarne monks for his body to be interred on their monastery. And uh, there was even a sarcophagus and winding sheet, a kind of shroud, ready for him at the moment of his death. His body is then carried to uh, Lindisfarne where it's buried. Now, 11 years later, after his death, his body is exhumed and its intention is to place the bones in a specially prepared wooden casket or shrine. Now, during this process, which is called a translation, it was found that his body hadn't decayed. Now, an incorrupt body is a real sign of sainthood, of sanctity. So it's translated to this new shrine, and it really turbocharges his veneration or cult. They're placed in this casket, which is laid on the floor of the sanctuary of the church at uh, Lindisfarne. That's the holiest bit near the high altar. And pilgrims flock to the shrine and numerous miracles are credited to Cuthbert's intercession. Now, he's undoubtedly among the great saints of medieval England and the most important saint of the north. I understand following on from that that the Lindisfarne Gospels, our key element of our story here, were written in St Cuthbert's honour. They are the island's most famous medieval manuscript. We can't really overstate that. And they are now in the possession of the British Library in London. But can you describe what they look like? Well, quite simply, they're one of the most magnificent books ever produced. They were written and decorated by hand. They're a manuscript. That's the only way of book production at this time. It's about 800 years before the age of print. Now, it's estimated they took about five years to complete. That's probably a minimum estimate, if anything. And it would have been an incredibly laborious process. So, talking about to describe them, you know, it's let's talk about the materials you needed. There are 258 individual leaves, each over two foot high. Now, they're not on paper as we use today, but they're on a very high class of parchment. That's animal skin called vellum. So it comes from hides, and it's been estimated that 150 calf hides were needed for the gospel leaves. That is an enormous amount of livestock. It's a laborious process turning cow hide, calf hide into parchment to be written on. And then, you know, the final stage is smoothing it with pumice stones. Then the lines have to be pricked out to take the script. And then there's underdrawings for the decoration. Now, the Latin script itself is beautiful. It's a work of art in its own right. And there are numerous elaborately decorated initials. There are leaves which consist of nothing but splendid ornament. Each of the four evangelists has his own leaf. St Matthew is depicted with his symbol, the angel. St Mark with his symbol, the lion. St Luke with an ox. St John with an eagle. And there are several leaves which have much more abstract ornament. They're what's called carpet pages. And these feature intricate interlaced designs. And there's some fantastical beasts lurking within this. 
and their decoration has clear affinities with ornament in other media such as luxury metalwork and stone sculpture. Now we now live in an age where there are images, artificial images all around us. We're surrounded by depictions of people, things and all other kinds of ornament. But go back to the age of the Lindisfarne Gospels and this most definitely wasn't the case. These brightly coloured pages with intricate ornament would have seemed mesmerising, even miraculous. Now, you mentioned it's the British Library, and you can actually turn the pages via the British Library website. And I'd really urge people to do this. But rather than hurrying through the book, sit quietly and direct your gaze on a decorated initial or one of those carpet pages. And do this quietly and calmly and analyse it detail by detail and let the complexity of the design sink in. And I'll bet you find it almost meditative. And I think that establishes a real connection with the Lindisfarne monks and pilgrims who would have gazed upon these pages. It would have been a real act of devotion and veneration and wonder for them. I can imagine. I think it's probably the modern equivalent of someone from this period being catapulted into our century and going to the cinema or going to an art gallery and looking at art and just being completely overwhelmed by what they're seeing because they have no frame of reference. They've never really seen this sort of stuff before. So it must have been full HD, 4K kind of (laughs) quality uh, religious devotion sort of pulling out of the page and assaulting the eyes in the most sort of serene kind of way for pilgrims. It must have been just a fantastic experience. Uh, For the monks themselves. And this is a book that, you know, has a monastic context for a very, very long time. So it's generations of monks sat down and looking at it, going through it page by page. It is remarkable. And, you know, we are privileged today that it's there available on the British Library website by their turning the pages. It's an ultra, ultra precious manuscript. And so few people are allowed to actually touch the real thing, turn its pages. But the digital experience, even that is quite remarkable and mesmerising. I can imagine, yes, definitely. So what are the Gospels about? Presumably Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Yeah, you're right. The clue's in the name, isn't it? It's not a complete Bible. They're the four Gospels, as you said, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. These are accounts of Christ's life and ministry on earth, his death and resurrection, his triumph over death and the promise of eternal life to all those who believe, regardless of their status sex or race. It's just so central to the Christian message, the belief system of the Lindisfarne monks. Again, we mentioned in the introduction that uh, the Lindisfarne Gospels are supposed to honour St Cuthbert, who was buried on Lindisfarne. Do they honour anyone else? Well, let's let's unpack the honouring of St Cuthbert. The Gospels have to be understood within the context of the moving or translating of his relics that I mentioned a short while ago. They were written around about the same time and together with Cuthbert's enshrined remains make an incredibly powerful statement about the saint's holiness and sanctity, his power and the power of the Christian word. Now, information about the making of the Gospels is provided by an inscription or a colophon is a technical word. 
added in the 10th century. So the book's already about 250 years old when it's been added, but I've got no doubt that it's true because of the persons it names. It says that the Gospels were written by Eadfrith, the Bishop of Lindisfarne, to the honour of God and St Cuthbert, and all the saints whose relics are on Lindisfarne. So the Lindisfarne provenance is explicit. Eadfrith became Bishop of Lindisfarne in, in 698. That's the year of the translation of Cuthbert's relics. And the inscription goes on to name two other individuals who played a key role in the preparation of the Gospels. There's Ethelwald, Bishop of Lindisfarne, who, it's said, impressed it inside and out. He succeeded Eadfrith, who I've just mentioned. And also mentioned is Bilfrith, the anchorite or hermit who is said to have made the lost binding which was treasured it was made of precious metal and jewels and indeed all three of these were to be venerated as saints so we've covered the provenance and the sort of veneration of saint cuthbert by his successors his brethren and how that memory is very very important in the way that this book is presented to the reader but can you also talk about the actual source material of the gospels uh, where that came from well, first of all, the text is taken from an Italian gospel book. So that's very much speaking to Roman Mediterranean traditions. And the evangelist images, the depictions of the four evangelists, to my eye at least, show very, very strong continental influences as well. But the ornamented letters, the carpet pages, well, they clearly show what are called insular influences, the Northumbrians' own artistic traditions, the artistry of the Irish monks who settled Lindisfarne. And some scholars have also detected Coptic, that's to say Ethiopian Christian influences. Now, it's a reminder of how well integrated this seemingly remote island monastery was into the Christian world of its day. And let's not forget that Christianity at this time was a religion of the then three known continents, Europe, Asia and Africa. And indeed, men from each of these continents played a crucial role in shaping the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons, their liturgy, the culture of their church and the culture of their wider society. Just remind us of the exact date that um, the book was published or at least finished it's late 7th century okay and at that point of publication shall we say what was the intended use of this work of art really and, and how was it displayed they're really interesting questions and i wonder if it would have been displayed almost as a relic of cuthbert and the islands of the holy personages. Now, books certainly were venerated as relics in this way. The monastery at St Augustine's in Canterbury, books associated with St Augustine were venerated as relics there, displayed as relics at the monasteries. And this think as well, that even if the book wasn't open, that that treasured binding would have been a magnificent sight. Now, the gospel readings, I think, on important feast days, such as St Cuthbert's own feast day on the 20th of March, was the gospel used for the gospel readings on those days? Were the monks provided access to it for the portion of the monastic day given over to reading? It's so precious in every way that I think it would have had to have been restricted for use on very special occasions or display as something remarkable and holy. And also it is so valuable as well. In every sense, it's spiritually valuable. It's got this enormous material value and cultural value. It would have had to be kept safe as well. 
Of course, um, despite the heavenliness of this book, we do have a, a very dark period in 793, which is a very big date in the story of Lindisfarne. How long did the island enjoy life as a monastery and a place of pilgrimage for St Cuthbert until it was targeted by the Vikings in 793? It's about 100 years, isn't it? And then there's the Viking raid, the well-described Viking raid of 793. And I think you've got to think about the events of the Viking raid in the context of 9-11 in our own age to get a sense of the shock and outrage that it caused. Now, there's been a bit of a historical tendency in recent years to downplay the significance of the raid, that, you know, it was just a convenient target. Well, I'm not so sure. I wonder if it was deliberately targeted because of its spiritual significance. This was an attack on the heart of Northumbrian culture, of Christianity in the north as well. And you get a real sense of the trauma of this event. In the words of Alcuin of York, and he's a Northern English cleric who's at the court of Charlemagne in Europe, and he, and he says, Never before has such a terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race, mm. nor was it thought that such an inroad from the sea could be made. It is an event of unbelievable horror as far as they're concerned and actually Alcuin thinks that it's down to the monks not living a holy enough way of life you know it's kind of a god sent these almost agents of satan almost <laughs> you know satellites of satan to commit this unspeakable act against them because they haven't been living up to standards but it really really is an act of terrible sacrilege as far as they're concerned but a massive blow to their culture and belief system can you describe now, how, how brutal the attack actually was? How many people died? Well, the violence of this event is powerfully evoked by a contemporaneous sculpted stone from Lindisfarne. And it's a grave marker and it depicts Viking warriors. Now, whether or not that is actually a memorial of this actual event in 793 or a general depiction of the disorder that then's following and the fear of these raiders coming back is open to question. But you can view it on the English Heritage website. It's one of the great treasures of Lindisfarne. And even at the space of the centuries, if you look at it closely with these warriors with their weapons raised, I think it's an image of absolute horror. As the surviving monks, can you tell us how many survived and what happened to Lindisfarne after the Vikings left? A community to survive and they stick it out for about a hundred or so years after this first raid but the life is becoming increasingly untenable there and the dangers and deprivations are such that they're forced to abandon their monastery. When they leave Lindisfarne they take Cuthbert's body with them and also the Gospels, and they wander around northern England trying to find a home, and at one point they even set sail for Ireland. But St Cuthbert isn't in the least bit happy about this, and uh, there's a story how the Gospel books jump ship, they end up in the ocean and are washed overboard because the saint wants them to stay in England and Cuthbert directs the monks where to find the Gospels and Cuthbert's body and the Gospels ultimately settle in Durham in 995 where Cuthbert's remains are reburied and where the Gospels remain for the rest of the Middle Ages as a mentioned in a Durham Cathedral library catalogue from I think it's 1367 which mentions the Gospels of St Cuthbert that got thrown into the sea and were found by the monks. 
that's the saints doing because he's angry with the monks for trying to take his remains and the gospels away from england he wants to remain there cuthbert wouldn't have agreed to his body being permanently enshrined in durham and indeed it remains in durham behind the high altar to this day one of the very few English saints whose bodies remain buried in the location where they were buried in the Middle Ages. So he obviously wanted to be buried in Durham. I'm trying to understand why why he would approve of, of that, given that he agreed to be buried on Lindisfarne. Yeah, well, it's the medieval mind. You have to get inside the medieval mind and monastic chroniclers and attitudes towards saints. Durham then becomes such a major centre for his cult. You could say it's more accessible than Lindisfarne, so more people are able to venerate him as well. And this great cathedral is built there. He knows that by being buried at Durham, by his shrine being at Durham, by Durham becoming this pilgrimage centre, that his fame will spread even further. So going back to Lindisfarne then, what actually happens to the island? Does it become occupied or does it become vulnerable to Viking raids for more years to come during this period where Cuthbert's remains are being taken around the country and then eventually buried in Durham? There's an enduring memory of the sanctity of Lindisfarne and it indeed once again becomes a site of a monastery shortly after the Norman Conquest. Monks from Durham briefly return there to Lindisfarne in 1069-70 during what's called the Harrying of the North. That's William the Conqueror's genocidal response to a northern rebellion against his rule. Now they go back to Durham, and but they then later establish what's called a cell or an outpost monastery at Lindisfarne, which is definitely in existence by 1122. Its church is complete by 1150 or so, and it's built over the spot where Cuthbert had first been buried. And and this grave, this location, becomes a focus of veneration and pilgrimage in its own right. But it's only a small monastery. I mean, Durham's one of the great monasteries of medieval England. The Lindisfarne Monastery is pretty small. The community consists of 10 or so monks at a time and they come from Durham for a short period of time for about two years or so before returning to the main monastery at Durham. We have about 500 years between that period after the Norman Conquest and Henry VIII's suppression and dissolution of the monasteries in the 1530s and 40s. What happened to Lindisfarne and its famous gospels during this period? The gospels seem to be at Durham they may well go back with the monks for that short period, 1169-70, but there's good evidence to believe that they're in the library at Durham Cathedral Priory. A library catalogue for 1367 mentions the Gospels of St Cuthbert, which had fallen into the sea and were recovered, and the legend I mentioned earlier can be connected to that, so I think that is what they're referring to. And it's, it's a local monastery, but it's also, Lindisfarne's a local monastery, but it's, there's also some evidence of it becoming, it's on the pilgrimage trail, pilgrims to St Cuthbert Shrine would, 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 if possible, take it in. And also it's hard to have inconvenience of getting there to make it a worthwhile pilgrimage destination it's in terms of the forgiveness of your sins, the remission of penances, time off purgatory. Now, as with the Viking period, you know, island monasteries can be good in one sense for recalling the desert and the remoteness and all that, but it means that you're 
also exposed and there's an awful lot of warfare isn't there in uh in this part of england in uh, the late middle ages and early modern period of armies going to and from and you know sailing down the coast and lindisfarne acquires some fortifications it's semi-fortified because of that I presume then, Michael, Lindisfarne becomes a victim of the suppression and dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII eventually. Do you have a date of when that happened exactly? Yeah, Lindisfarne is dissolved in 1537 and Durham Cathedral Priory is dissolved in 1540. As listeners will know, the dissolution or suppression of the monasteries is accompanied by huge cultural destruction and monastic libraries are targeted people are eager to get their hands on books some books are simply destroyed well over about 600 books or so survive from Durham and that's a remarkably high number for an English medieval monastic library and indeed many of them are still there in Durham it's quite incredible but the Lindisfarne Gospels isn't among them monastic libraries were widely dispersed and the Lindisfarne Gospels seems to have headed south at a very, very early date. Mm. Now, the first evidence of its post-monastic history dates to 1605, when it's in the hands of a book collector called Robert Boyer, and it subsequently passes into the hands of Sir Robert Cotton. Now, he's a great bibliophile and collector of manuscripts, and he dies in 1631. And in 1753, the Cotton Manuscripts one of the founding collections of the recently established British Museum. The books of the British Museum are now, of course, the British Library, and that's where it remains to this day, the Lindisfarne Gospels. And it's amazing that they've survived all this time. What's your opinion on that, about how these precious Gospels have survived since the 700s? Well, there is an interesting theory about why did they survive and it could well have been just because they were appreciated at the time as being this cultural treasure and it's really interesting that St Cuthbert's body isn't destroyed like that of so many other saints you know when the commissioners come to take down his shrine and they find his body is still incorrupt and so many of his relics are still accompanying and they ask what to do they ask what should we do with it and they rebury it the shrine's destroyed but they rebury Cuthbert's body and is there something associated with the enduring sense of holiness and Cuthbert's importance to the religious identity the cultural identity of the north that's involved with this I, I don't know and then also is it because they are just so remarkable they are just so beautiful it's interesting that the newly founded Church of England is quite eager to acquire for itself some historical legitimacy and part of that is looking back for instance to the Anglo-Saxon church and you know is there a church here that we can claim descent from other than the missionaries from Rome or do they survive because there is an early English translation of the Gospels an interlinear text between the Latin text of them. It's really quite, you know, if you look closely, you can see it there. And has it survived because we have evidence of an early translation of the Bible? Yes, that is a very interesting question. But it's still a remarkable story, just a fantastic survival of early Christian history. Oh, it's just remarkable. I think it is one of the great cultural treasures of the world, to be perfectly honest. And... I've seen it many times on display in the galleries of the British Library. 
It's a free gallery at the British Library where it can be seen. Pages are open, but then also, the it is and it is as privileged to be able to do this to leaf through its remarkable pages on the web, and it's something which in the Middle Ages, in centuries past, so few people would have had the opportunity to do to look at each of its pages. And okay, it's I'm going to say only digitally, but it still gives us that opportunity to interact with this remarkable manuscript in its entirety and I believe it's going to be heading north in a couple of years time it's going to be exhibited in Newcastle that's not that far away from Lindisfarne so I hope that visitors to the remarkable although you know they are post-conquest the ruins which you see on Holy Island on Lindisfarne of the monastery there take in the Gospels when they're up there in Newcastle and there's also the remarkable collection from the Anglo-Saxon monastery at Lindisfarne it is a remarkable place and you don't have to have any religious belief whatsoever to get a spiritual connection with the site and to recognize it as a place of the sacred and of the human spirit You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll uncover the story of Kirby Hall, one of England's greatest Elizabethan and 17th century houses, along with that of its owners, servants and guests. Some of the most lavish and expensive interiors were, of course, in those departments in which the king or queen would receive guests, entertain themselves and sleep in. Thanks for listening. See you next time.